Old Testament lesson is found in Nehemiah 7. Begin in verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Then he lists a number of exiles by name and location and the number of them and finishes in verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to your throne humbly, knowing that we are those who need our eyes opened, our ears opened, our hearts opened to your word. And so we do ask this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see wonderful things in this portion of your scripture in Nehemiah 7. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember where you were January 8th, 2018, the beginning of last year? I do. I was at the Ringhaver's house with 10 to 15 other guys from our church burning a Christmas tree and watching the Georgia Bulldogs play the Alabama Crimson Tide in their first national championship game since 1980. To say the very least, friends, this was the most important game for a Georgia Bulldog in nearly four decades. Kirby Smart had only been the head coach for two years, and to go from eight wins and five losses to 13 wins and one loss, and now playing for the national championship game, was unprecedented. No one in college football expected this guy to do what he had done and rebuild the Georgia Bulldog program the way he had done it. He was literally living a dream. And as you watched the first half of the national championship game, you could feel the excitement deep inside your bones as you watched the Bulldogs take the tide to town the dogs were winning 13 to nothing at the half, but y'all, it felt infinitely more significant than a scoreboard. We were beating the best team in the nation and doing it handily. We were winning 13 to nothing. We had 15 first downs to the Alabama four. 15 first downs to their four first downs. We had 229 yards to their 89. Friends, they hadn't even crossed the 100-yard threshold when at the half we were well into the 200s. Jake Fromm was a true freshman, and he was throwing bombs. This guy was incredible. Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle were running all over the tide, and all the Georgia Bulldogs had to do at halftime was come out, get back on the field, finish the game, and keep doing what they had been doing the whole game throwing the ball and running and doing it well. But they succumb to the same temptation that plagues us all. Friends, the temptation to take a break, the temptation to step back, look at all of our successes, kick up our feet, and coast to the finish line. 
the coast to the end of the game. In fact, we think we deserve a break for all the hard work that we've put in and all of the opposition that we've endured. We're winning. It must be time to take a break. But that's not Nehemiah's mentality here in chapter 12, or chapter 7. He's accomplished something unprecedented in the history of Israel. In the face of major opposition, he, with the rest of the Israelites, have finished the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. From start to finish, 52 days. But he's not finished. For Nehemiah, it's only halftime, and like a good football coach, he gathers his players around him, and he says to them, we're not finished. It's not over. We have another half to play. This is, chapter 7 is just the halfway point between the finishing of the wall, the rebuilding of the wall, and the populating of Jerusalem. Jerusalem still needs to be populated with God's people, a restored community living in line with God's promises. And what we see in Nehemiah 7 is God laying it on the heart of Nehemiah, laying it on his heart to finish the task to populate Jerusalem with God's people. And while Nehemiah is important, y'all, he's a major player in the restoration of God's people, the restoration of God's city, but he's not the primary actor. He's not the one doing the primary work. God's the one who put it on Nehemiah's heart to solve the problem. The problem was listed in Verse 4, that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, to answer the problem. So friends, it's God who accomplishes his promise to fill his city and his church with his people. But how does he go about doing so? How does he go about filling the church? There are four things that we see in this passage that are of note first thing is that God connects his people to the past. One significant feature of this genealogy is that it's not new. This is just a replica of the genealogy that's found in Ezra 2 with only a few minor differences in numbering and naming. This demonstrates that Nehemiah understood his present community, the restoration community, within the broader context of Israel's story, particularly connected to the first exile returnees in Ezra 1. He understands himself in a broader context. But they're also connected to God's people prior to the exile. The genealogy begins in verse 7 with a list of leaders, beginning with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, and so on. And there are 12 names. Now, the number 12 is no coincidence. Number 12 is a pretty significant number in the Bible, if you're familiar with it. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 sons of Jacob who God had made promises to and who turned into those 12 tribes. And these 12 names are connecting the people, this present community, to the 12 tribes of Israel who were the outworking of the promises of God to their patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to make them a great nation. And not only that, but the first two names in verse 7 are Zerubbabel and Joshua. And you're probably thinking, Oh, yeah, we know who Joshua and Zerubbabel are. I saw a couple giggles over here and there. But Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was the last king of Judah before they were exiled into Babylon. 
And then Jeshua was the, last, was the grandson of Sariah, who was the last officiating high priest of Judah before they were exiled. These two men would be, presumably become the next king and high priest in Jerusalem. They are representative of the continuity between the restored community and the kingdom prior to the exile. They're so important that a few years later, the prophet Zechariah would use them as images to represent a restored kingdom of Israel. All this is a declaration that this is no fraudulent community. But these are the inheritors of the promises of God. They've come, they, they have confidence to work to restore the community, not because they can work themselves, but because when God makes a promise, we expect him to fulfill it. He makes a promise in the past and will fulfill it. He's a God who makes multi-generational promises. And this is clear in Acts 2 when the people ask Peter, what shall we do to be saved? And he tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And friends, he makes that promise to you this morning that he will be God to you that he will be God to your children after you. And you can have confidence to join him in the efforts and the work of restoring his church because he's a God who keeps promises and connects us to all of his past promises to his people. And then the second way God fills his church is that he provides roles for people to fill. Nehemiah understood that there were particular leadership structures that allowed the religious community of Jerus- in Jerusalem to flourish. We see these structures in this genealogy. It begins with the primary leaders in verse 7 and then moves into the laity in verses 8 through 38, identifying them by place and by family. Then in verse 39, it gets into specific roles, and it begins with the priests. Now, these priests were the ordained ministers in the temple. Their responsibility was to educate the people in God's word. They were responsible for blessing the people and making spiritual judgments and proclamations. They would make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people and so offer forgiveness of sins. And then once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And then the genealogy moves in verse 43 to other servants in the temple, beginning with the Levites, who were the assistants to the priests. Then he moves to singers. As you can imagine, these were the musicians. These were the hymn writers. They would teach the people of God the psalms. They would teach them the music of Israel. And then the gatekeepers were responsible for locking and unlocking the temple and for keeping watch over the treasury. Then he lists a number of other servants, including the servants of Solomon, who would assist in the daily tasks of the temple. And the New Testament is also clear that the religious community of the church functions in a similar way. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that God gave the apostles. He gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church of Christ. This list of roles is by no means exhaustive, But what it is indicative of is the way God builds his church. He provides roles to fill, and he gives gifts. So one way for you to figure out what role you might need to fill in the church is just to ask the question, what are my gifts? And I'm not encouraging necessarily to take a spiritual gifts test and sit down and go through all the numbering and and effort that that takes, but 
that has a place. But all I'm asking you to think about is to ask the question, what am I good at? What do I like to do? What are the gifts that God has given me to be good at that may be indicating where you need to serve, what role you would be filling in the church? And so we join God. We are responsible for utilizing our gifts to join God in the efforts of rebuilding his church. And then the third way is that God includes the nations in his people. There's something interesting that's happening in this genealogy. While, the, while it's certainly uh, concerned with maintaining ancestral lineage for ethnic Israelites, it also gives some freedom to include the nations within the people of God with some limitations, of course, to the holding of office like the priesthood and the Levites. In the list of the laity and the temple servants in particular, there are a few names that aren't Jewish names in a few locations that aren't necessarily Israelites. Specifically in the list of the laity, Lod, Hadid, and Ono are locations just outside the borders of Judah to the west in a land called Philistia, which was the land of the Philistines. And then in the list of the temple servants, there's one name here in Nehemiah and two names in Ezra 2 that are Egyptian in origin, Ziha and Asna. There are also people in verses 61 to 63 who can't prove their lineage. This may be because their ancestral records had gone missing, or it could be that the records were non-Israelite. Either way, what we can conclude by differing names is that Israel is continuing to live by the law set out in Exodus, particularly Exodus 12, 48. That if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native to the land. There shall be one law for the native and for the sojourner among you. There is to be no difference between the God-fearing Israelite and the God-fearing Gentile turned Israelite. There's no more room for hostility. And in Jesus, we see the floodgates of the nations opening up so that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And friends, Jesus has killed the hostility. He has made the two men one man. He has joined Jew and Gentile into one man in himself, thereby killing the hostility. And so he includes the nations in himself, leaving no more room for hostility, no more room for ethnic hostility, no more room for social or economic hostility, no more room, uniting us as one. And then lastly, God utilizes the resources of his people. Verses 70 through 72 indicates that the entire assembly gave to the work of filling the church. This was another way for the people to both give thanks to God for all that he had done to restore them, to bring them back to a city and rebuild their walls, 
but it was also a way for them to partner with God in his continued restoration of his people. I won't go into all of the numbers and and who gave what amount, but the sum is incredible. And when you add it up, they gave about 625 pounds of gold to the treasury. They gave nearly 100 priests' garments. And y'all, we're not talking about like fancy bow ties. We're talking about like really nice ornamental robes that the priests would wear. They gave 50 basins and nearly 6,000 pounds of silver. This was an extraordinary amount of money, an extraordinary sum. What this indicates is that it does take money. It takes financial resources to restore the people of God. And it wasn't just the leaders and the heads of households who gave. It says that the rest of the people gave to the treasury. The whole assembly together gave to the treasury for the process of restoring its people to their place. Paul captures this work in 2 Corinthians 8, where he encourages the church in its giving. He says, What we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's saying this church is afflicted and they're poverty-stricken, but they are overflowing with wealth and generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Friends, this captures how the community under Nehemiah understood their resources. This captures how the early church viewed physical and monetary resources. It wasn't primarily for the building up of myself. It was to be used in service of God for the restoring of his people, the restoring of his creation, the restoring of his church. And friends, we do this every week with our tithes and offerings. We first give ourselves to the Lord, offering ourselves to God in thanks. And by, then by the will of God, we give ourselves through our money to his work in Jacksonville and around the world. That's what we offer on Sunday mornings. We offer him thanks and partner with him in the continued work of the gospel. And sometimes we give according to our means, and sometimes like this Macedonian church, we give beyond our means. Either way, God utilizes the monetary resources of his people to fill his church, to restore his people to their proper place. So God fills his church, and he does so first by connecting us to the promises he's made to his people in the past. And then he gives us roles to play with our gifts, roles to fill with the things that we're good at. And then he also engrafts the nations into his people, making the two one man and leaving no more room for hostility. And finally, by allowing us to partner with him, by utilizing our financial resources, he fills the church with his people. 
A few weeks ago, while Cassie was at Bible study, I was watching the, uh, the newest Mission Impossible movie. I do that when Cassie's away at Bible study. I watch all of the movies that blow things up. The whole premise of the movie is that Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, and his team are trying to prevent a, a, a devastating nuclear attack on the Vatican, Jerusalem, and Mecca, the three major religious centers in the world. But to accomplish the task in front of them, Ethan Hunt's team would have to trust him. They would need to rely on him. And at the end of the movie, we see the members of his team ready to cut the green wire on each of the bombs, which they'd have to do simultaneously in order to disable the bombs. If they didn't, they would all blow up in their faces. So they had to cut it simultaneously together but they also had to trust Ethan to remove the fail-safe key inside the device that triggered the bombs. So they're having to rely on him to get rid of the key that locks all of these bombs so that they can cut the green wire and stop this devastating attack. And when they're ready, one of them says over their microphones, Ethan, we're ready. But they receive no reply. Only silence. One of them turns to another and asks, how do we know if he's got the key? And another says, he'll get it. Yeah, but, but how do we know? He'll get it done. We'll wait till two. And y'all, the reason why they believed he'll get it done is because he had proven over and over and over again through multiple movies that he'll get it done, that he'll get it done. And friends, God has proven throughout history, thousands and thousands of years, over and over and over again, that he is reliable, that he will get it done. He will accomplish his promises to fill his church with his people. Through his son, Jesus Christ. And you can join him in that task because he's going to get it done. Let's pray.